Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On an unusually hot spring day in 2016, a fire was spotted in a dense, dry forest. The record high temperatures and low humidity allowed the flames to grow rapidly and spread across the forest floor. The air became thick with smoke, turning the sky a hazy orange. Nicknamed the Beast, the wildfire tore through communities in northern Alberta, and in just a few days it consumed everything in its path as it crept towards a city of 80,000 people and forced them out of their homes. There were mass evacuations. Look at that, like that, even in the past five minutes, has just flared up. And uh, to be honest, I'm not sure how long we'll be able to stay here, but it shows how quickly things are changing. And there was mass destruction that reduced much of the community to ash. I'm Erica Bella, a journalist for Global News. Today, I go back to that city and speak with first responders and community members whose lives were disrupted six years ago to find out what happened to the Fort McMurray wildfire. Fort McMurray is primarily an industrial city built on oil sands and surrounded by thick boreal forests that beckon nature lovers. There's plenty to do, canoeing, fishing, hiking, mountain biking in the warmer months, and snowboarding, cross-country skiing, and snowmobiling in the winter. The spring of 2016 in Fort McMurray was hotter and drier than usual. Mike Flanagan is a wildfire expert and a professor at Thompson Rivers University in BC. He said that in the winter leading up to the fire, the El Nino climate pattern was one of the strongest on records across Canada. And for Alberta, typically that means a warm, dry winter. And that's exactly what happened, followed by a, a warm, dry spring. And then we come to the end of April and beginning of May, and we had record-breaking temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius. And this is early May. Um, Many years, there's still snow on the ground early May in Fort McMurray. This year, it was hot and dry. But it wasn't just heat. Mike says three contributing factors were a recipe for disaster. And the first ingredient is vegetation. Fire people call it fuel, okay? What type of fuel, how much you have of it, how it's distributed vertically or horizontally. But probably most importantly, how dry is that fuel? So that's the first ingredient. The second ingredient is ignition. People and lightning are the two common ones. In May, in Alberta, it's usually people. Um, The third ingredient is hot, dry, windy weather. Extreme weather. And you get all three and you now have a fire. Conditions seemed perfect for what was to come. So We've had lots of forest fires in our area in the past, and we've worked lots of forest fires in that area. As far as moving into our city, with a forest fire, you never know what's going to happen. It is always an unpredictable event. As the year before the fire of Slave Lake, um, they had the same type of a fire as what we had. 
That's Damian Asher, a veteran firefighter and the captain of the Fort McMurray Fire Department. He'd seen wildfires wreak havoc in northern Alberta. In fact, five years earlier, the town of Slave Lake, which is about four and a half hours southwest of Fort Mac, saw a fire destroy nearly 400 homes, businesses, and apartment complexes and cause an estimated $700 million worth of damage. So in the spring of 2016... Damien and his team were closely monitoring a fire that had been burning outside of Fort McMurray for a couple of days. Forestry crews, Alberta Forestry was on it. They were putting in their measures um, to keep the fire at bay and keep the fire located in the area where it was. And then, so so we knew where it was, we were prepared for it, uh, for where it was. Uh, We had discussions of uh, testing all our skills, making sure our equipment worked, all that sort of stuff. And then it was just on that day, the wind direction made a 180 degree shift in wind direction and pushed the fire into the city. As the fire headed towards Fort Mac, reporters traveled to the city to cover what was unfolding. There were journalists stationed at the side of the road doing live hits with the roaring fire in the background. My colleague from Global Edmonton, Fletcher Kent, was one of them. He's the managing editor now, but back in 2016, he was working as a reporter, and he remembers hearing about the fires in northern Alberta. You get a ton of fires up in northern Alberta. Some of them uh, are close to populated areas, and that's what happened here. There was one of those fires that happened to be close to Fort McMurray, and it kind of piqued a few people's interest, just given its proximity. But really, it wasn't anything all that out of the ordinary. But it was a big enough deal that uh, myself and, uh, and a crew uh, decided, okay, we'll go up there and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start covering this. Uh, we'll go see what's happening, see what sort of efforts they're going. But honestly, when we went up there, I figured I'd be back in a couple of days, go see how they are fighting this fire and uh, uh, and then <laughs> cover that, say that they've got it under control and probably head back. Because typically, honestly, that's what happens with a lot of these fires. Fletcher and the Global News crew made the four and a half hour drive to Fort McMurray on May the 2nd. You could see some smoke off in the distance. And we talked to the talked to the firefighters who said that they were doing an OK job of containing it. Um, but then with some cautionary words as well. Went to bed on the night of the second, uh, having told some stories. There's some some embers floating over, wondering what's going to happen the next day. Uh, then, when we woke up in the morning, opened up the window, looked outside just to see what is it that we're dealing with. Is this going to be a story where we end up going home like we thought, or is it going to be something more? And there's absolutely nothing on the horizon. It's like, okay, well, things done. There's nothing more here. It's like okay, well. Let's do a wrap-up story and then maybe see about getting ready to go. Fletcher said things began to change just a couple of hours later. The fire chief at the time said, yeah, there's not much out there, but that's sort of what you'd expect. It's a little cooler right now, but the temperature is about to change. Probably right around noon is when we start to expect that'll be the true test. That'll be when the temperature gets hot enough, the humidity gets low enough, and that's when it's really going to see what's going what's going to happen with this fire next. And that sort of piqued my interest. It piqued a lot of everybody, all the other reporters that were up there going, really? Like, I mean, I can't see anything over there. There's not even any smoke on the horizon. It's a beautiful, clear, warm day. We wandered 
outside after that going, okay, maybe there is a bit more of this. Uh, went down to an area that had been evacuated the night before because of a few concerns. They were allowed to go back. And as they went back, we started chatting with them. And I, I still remember talking to a few people who were just unloading some of their stuff after a night away from their homes. And you see a, this hint of some smoke just in behind them. Uh, and then five minute interview and a few pictures later, you looked up again right behind them. And now there's a thick plume went down the street, did another interview with somebody else. And now you're seeing it thicker and thicker and thicker really in the span of about half an hour, it went from absolutely no smoke out on the horizon to this large plume of smoke that's now starting to uh, fill the sky. In a matter of hours, the sky turned orange. The smoke had covered the, filled the entire sky and it was just this eerie, almost post-apocalyptic looking feel to everything because the entire part of the, all of Fort McMurray was covered with this orange glow just from all the smoke hanging over top of us. While Fletcher was intent on staying in Fort Mac to cover the developments, Duchess Sabovich and her husband were keeping a close eye on the fire reports too. The wind shifted and now it's going in another direction. And we kept getting these updates all the time. And we were varying between, gee, this is stressing me out because I can actually smell the smoke, to, oh, I don't smell smoke today. I, I think we're okay. So this morning, like it, we woke up, the sky was clear. Duchess had been living in Fort Mac for 10 years. And as she left a meeting, she was shocked by what she saw. And the sky was black and I could see ashes starting to fall. And I turned on the radio and they're still not telling anybody to leave. And I thought that was very strange. So then I, I had to fax some things to the government. So I went to the staples. I came out of the staples and it was, you could actually see the smoke and billowing flames behind the trees on the far side of the city. And it just looked like an apocalypse. Like it was, and then I heard on the radio, they're evacuating waterways. That's where Duchess's stepson lived. He didn't think he had to worry about it. And uh, so I phoned my husband and woke him up. And I said, you know what? They're evacuating part of the city. I think we should be ready to leave. And could you please call your son? So he talked to his son and his son got out of bed, looked out the window and part of his lawn was on fire. And he went, okay, yeah. So he did this massive escape. So and he went up north because that's where they were channeling people because the flames were coming from the south. And that was one of the southern parts of the town. So he went up north and uh, I would just, I looked at the car and it was like empty and gas. So I went to get gas so that we would have a way out. And the lineup, there was one gas station that had already exploded. So it was gone. There was another one that was already out of gas because people were filling up and going. And the one near our home, um, I went there, the lineups were probably 10 blocks in every direction. And there is no way I was going to get there in time. So I parked my car 10 blocks away and ran to the store and bought a jerry can and filled it with gas. And while I was, I put it down and turned to the cashier. And while I was paying for the gas, someone stole the jerry can of gas from beside me. And so I was like crazy at that point. And somebody who was filling up a bunch of jerry cans in the back of their truck just said, here, take one of mine. And he gave me one and I, I got home with that. And my husband said, you know, this car uses a lot of gas. It isn't going to make it past all the flames in this. We'll put it in a motorcycle because it, the motorcycle will certainly get past. 
all the time. So that's why we left on the motorcycle and there was enough to put a little in a jerry, a tiny jerry can on the back of the motorcycle. A mass evacuation was ordered at around 6 p.m. on Tuesday, May the 3rd. Duchess and her husband were two of approximately 80,000 residents forced to leave their homes, and they would be doing it on a motorcycle, which meant they were limited on what they could take. It's bizarre the way your mind goes. It, it was like, oh my goodness, this cutlery, like this silverware that my mother gave me, and it was like, no, 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 like we only have a little bit of room, right? Like, so we had one of our backpacks was full of all water because we knew that we were going to be thirsty and it's going to be trouble on the road. And, and uh, my husband has a, a fire extinguisher, a very small fire extinguisher on the bike. What that was going to do for us, I have no idea. After packing up the essentials, the couple decided to wait until they could travel south. And everybody's going north. But if there was a fire north there, he was saying, all that's up there is a few camps. If the roads get blocked there, nobody's got food, nobody's got anything. And then what? So we waited for a while, and the minute those south roads opened, we got on our motorcycle and we went. As we came out of our driveway, we could see the glow of the fire just north of us, and we were going, well, that's very weird because they're saying the fire is south. And so my husband said, no, I think that's just the sunset. And I looked at the time. Now, the beginning of May, we're in normal times, and I said, no, it's only five. There's no way we have a sunset at five. That's a glow from fire. So there's another fire as well. And what happened is there was one at the south, but there was another one at the north. And so we were kind of getting surrounded by the different fires. Equipped with water, a fire extinguisher, and some gas in a small jerry can, Duchess and her husband started making their way out of town. My husband says, we're not looking backwards. We're just going to go. So yeah, it was a very, very stressful ride. The visibility was terrible because of the smoke. But we were able to see the, the trees. We were able to see the, the houses falling. There was one propane tank on someone's deck that exploded and shot like a missile across the road. Not near us, thank goodness, didn't hit anybody. But it certainly increased your stress levels. And I could feel my husband was like bolt straight in that, in that position. And he was very stressed. So I just kind of leaned forward and said, are we going on an adventure? And it was just an immediate not now. Getting out of the city would be no simple task. Duchess and her husband quickly saw that the highways headed out of town were jam-packed with evacuating vehicles. As Fletcher Kent explains, that's because there's really only one way in and out of Fort McMurray. There's Highway 63 that runs north and south. And if you want to get out of that community, you're going out on Highway 63. There's a few different ways that you can get to it, but that's the only highway that you're going to be able to get to. But when you've got 88,000 people that are trying to get out of a community on one four-lane highway, uh, that is an unbelievable undertaking. But I still remember now standing there doing live hits into a whole bunch of different uh, newscasts and then probably, I don't know how long it would have been, it would have been an hour or two later, realizing that the background for my shot hasn't changed in the last two hours. Police had made it so that there's a northbound pair of lanes and a southbound pair of lanes. All of them were going south. They just blocked it off. Nobody could go north anymore. It's just get as many people out of the community as possible. So constantly for the 
for two hours straight, there was just four lanes of traffic going south, people leaving town. That didn't stop. There was no lull. It was just a constant stream of traffic, and it just didn't change. It was just incredible. As residents escaped, first responders like firefighter Damien Asher turned to face the growing flames. Once we moved in the area, the fire moved in really fast, um, and it just, uh, it, it come in like a big wave. It, it was super dry that year, so it was just a big wave of fire that come up out of the trees, and as it come up and crowned out of the trees, it uh, threw a lot of debris into the res- residential zones. A lot of uh, burnt embers were landing in houses, backyards, on decks and stuff like that, lighting houses on fire. So we had lots of fires in multiple areas, not just at the face of where the fire was. Obviously, Fort McMurray's a, a widespread out city. We have lots of different subdivisions and stuff like that within our city. So we had multiple things going on in different locations. So we put as much resources in place um, to say we're prepared for uh, a whole entire subdivision on fire wouldn't, wouldn't be the case. But um, we are prepared to fight uh, a residential fire for sure. Just we had more fires happening than manpower that we had. Um, and then we ran into problems of areas where fire was surrounding us in all directions. So we had to move out and put firefighters into safe locations to be able to fight these fires. The fire did not relent. For days, Damien and other firefighters tried to stunt its rapid growth. It went on from Tuesday all the way till Friday. We had fire departments from all across Alberta came up to support us to uh, help spread the workload out across the whole entire city through different departments to help extinguish these fires. There was no real rest time. Everybody, you know, was, quick nap in the back of the fire truck on the side of the road while someone else was performing a task. Uh, Just try to get a little bit of catch out where you could, but nobody returned to their houses. Nobody had time to take a break to go home and do whatever needed to be done there. It seemed like nothing could stop the fire's path of destruction. And Damien was one of the many that lost his home while fighting the blaze. My wife had saw a Facebook post or something where one of the helicopters flew over the area and took an aerial uh, video and posted it on Facebook. And she called me and said that it was gone. Um, I, I hadn't been out to that area yet to have a look. So when she called me, um, took a minute, told her that, you know, it'll be okay. We'll move on. Everything will be fine from here and we'll be able to survive this. But uh, th- there was still work to be done. So it was just It was a quick, I'm okay, we'll be okay, and let's carry on from there. He wasn't able to process the loss for several days. I think it was about 10 days later, we finally got some days off and got to go back to see our families and uh, got relieved from work and were able to leave the city, even though the city was evacuated. And uh, when it came time to leave for me to go see my family, all I had on was the dirty uniform I'd been wearing for the whole entire week. I had no clothes to get changed into. I didn't own anything. I couldn't go get anything. It was just uh, leaving what I was wearing, what I'd currently had on for the whole week. And by then, the fire had moved out of the city. It was blowing east towards Saskatchewan. And then that's all forested area. So it was just kind of left to go from there. Um, but within the city itself, it was moving through the, say, move through the first 200 feet 
do a 200 foot ring around the whole entire city and make sure that all that area was cold and wet, that there was no more burning ash, no more embers, nothing that could spark up and move back to within the city. So between the the city, the support staff, uh, the fire departments from across Alberta that came up and helped, everybody was just in those forested areas, just making sure everything was cool. So we had a great big cold ring around the whole entire city. The fire reduced parts of Fort McMurray to ash. Over 2,400 buildings were destroyed. The damage was extensive to the point where um, power lines had been lost, water lines had been lost, natural gas system had been lost. So I think it was, the, the city was shut down, I think, until July before even the residents of the city were allowed to come back to the city because there was no, the, the infrastructure needed to be fixed before they could move back to the city. Damien's family didn't move back to Fort McMurray until summer 2016. My family had evacuated south. We had a camper lot at a lake south of the city, so they evacuated there. And then when the time came that things were safe, we moved our camper back to Fort McMurray, and we lived in our camper up until winter as the construction had started. So we just lived in a camper and then uh, friends of ours in our community that their house was still standing, we went and lived with them for a few months until we had a place with heat turned on that we could pull our camper into. So I built a great big shop on my property and we pulled the camper inside the shop and then we lived inside the shop for a year and a half while we rebuilt our house. Damien is also a contractor. And while some things could be replaced and rebuilt... There were other things that were gone forever. Well, it's it's definitely a huge stress of not having anything in your life that you always had before. If you stand around and look around your house and look at the things that you have and the things that you use on a daily basis to all of a sudden not have them anymore. And then to think, okay, no big deal. I don't have that. Well, I'll just go replace it. So you go replace it, but then where do you put it? You've got nowhere to put it. We lost, uh, we lost all the baby photos of our kids. Um, first outfit, we brought the kids home in, uh, baby blankets, uh, wedding photos. We had had ashes of previous pets that we had had cremated. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that you just, you can't get back. And I don't want to say you just need to forget and move on, but dwelling on it, um, isn't going to make it any easier. So it's happened. It's something that's happened. You can't change what has happened. Uh, you can't let that manage your life and uh, dwell on it, I guess. Unlike Damien, Duchess Sabovich was one of the lucky ones. She didn't lose her home. But she was still shocked when she returned home two months after the wildfire. It was horrific. Like, everything was black. All the beauty, like, I used to say what a wonderful drive it was to Fort Mac because it's big fort, boreal forests everywhere and streams and everything, and it was just totally devastated. And in town, there was a banner that said, welcome back, welcome home. It was, I mean, that was nice, but it still, it didn't look like home. It didn't smell like home. I mean, the, the day we were leaving, all of our neighbors were watching the raven nest because the ravens every year would bring their babies to our house and we were watching them through binoculars as they were feeding their babies in their nest and the whole nest was gone and 
the when we got back, the adults were sitting on our feeder that we have in the back. We had a platform feeder for them, and they were having their heads down and you know like crying and, and it was it was awful. It was awful. Our the deer were gone. The squirrels we fed were gone. Everything like all of the wildlife and, and nature was gone. The fires took a toll, particularly on her husband. It still remains very difficult. Uh, my husband suffers from PTSD. Last September, he actually had to stop working. He got to the point where he cannot work. Before all these fires happened, his mother's house had burned to the ground with his mom in it. So that, plus having to go through the flames here, really made things so much worse for him. Not long after the fire swept through Fort McMurray, RCMP were called in to investigate. Mounties have been working with provincial wildfire investigators to determine what caused the blaze. I spoke with RCMP Sergeant John Bradfield, who works with the Major Crimes Unit. Our mandate is obviously not wildfires, but given the scope of this, when, uh, you know, it had essentially burned down a large portion of a city, it was determined that that's why our unit would take it. What we were looking to determine was what was the cause and origin of the fire and then to conduct an investigation to determine if it was a criminal incident. He said investigators, alongside experts from Alberta Wildfire, narrowed in on an area where they believed the fire started. It's a wooded area that that had like recreational trails, like it, it it had industrial um, use and recreational use in the in the area of it. Their next task was to find out the cause of the fire. The only natural cause of a wildfire is lightning strikes, right? So that's where, again, uh, Alberta Wildfire has quite a robust lightning detection system uh, set up that's in place. So once we determined where the fire started, we were able to speak with them and confirm that there was no thunderstorms, no lightning detected in the area of where the fire started. So by essentially by ruling that out, uh, by eliminating a thunderstorm, a lightning strike, then like by process of elimination, we're down to, okay, it's, it's human caused, uh, which can be you know, from a number of like human activities uh, ranging, you know, from accidental, like inadvertent to something that's that could be criminal. Right. So that, that was that's essentially the progression of what we're looking into. Human caused fires, right, could start from lots of things. So like we start, it could be an arson, could be an unattended campfire that, you know, is just left and carries on. Um, and then residential and industrial activities, like any type of burning, uh, could cause wildfire, and as well as recreational stuff like ATVs. Though RCMP created a tip line with the hopes of shedding light on how the fire started, it's been six years and the cause remains unknown. We'd like to hear from anyone who has any information about uh, the Fort McMurray wildfires. Um, to contact the, uh, the RCMP or Crime Stoppers. And um, despite it being years later, every tip that we receive w- is investigated. And like I say, uh, something small that people think 
you know, maybe that it's unimportant, right? We always want the public to know that um, if you have any information about it, we'd rather them not vet that information for us, but just come forward to the police with it because we have the benefit of knowing the entire investigation and something that may seem irrelevant uh, could be very relevant once it's passed on to the police. That's because it remains unclear if this was accidental or arson. Wildfire expert Mike Flanagan says that although people moved back in 2016, the fire wasn't officially put out until 2017. So it spread through the town on May 3rd and 4th, 2016. It was declared out summer of 2017. It reached Saskatchewan. It was 600,000 hectares. I mean, you have to look it up, but I think close to the size of Prince Edward Island, maybe ballpark. Um, so really a large chunk of real estate. And the reason it lasted so long is that fires can smolder, and particularly in what we call peatlands. Peatlands are organic material, 40 centimeters or more, often sphagnum mosses. If you've been to a landscaping um, store, they have those bags of peat moss. Well, it can smolder right through winter. And then in spring, the snow melts and it gets warm and dry again, and that pops up it's still alive. So it takes a while to put it out. It's possible that, you know, these hot spots get hot, dry, and windy and sparks blow and it starts spreading again. So it takes a while before, especially if it's such a large area, it's more likely to hit some of these peatlands where it can smolder for periods. And, you know, I, I mentioned I was in Fort Murray about three weeks after the start of the fire. And there were still smoldering spots within the community um, in, in the forest. And so this is typical. And there was even new vegetation coming up almost right beside the smoldering spot, which is you know, just Mother Nature doing her thing. Mike said the impact of the fire spanned well beyond the actual flames. Recently burned areas are more likely to flood and cause mudslides and debris flows. So you've got the direct impacts of fire, you've got the indirect impacts of smoke, and then you've got that cascading impacts from potential you know, increased likelihood of flooding and mud debris flows in recently burned areas. In April 2020, almost four years to the day, 13,000 people were forced to flee Fort McMurray when ice jams in the Athabasca and Clearwater Rivers caused them to overflow their banks. 1,200 structures were damaged. It's something Fletcher Kent also covered. Trauma is certainly something that would describe these last few years for a lot of people that may have been living in Fort McMurray. Uh, I did speak to one woman whose house did burn the first time around. And then when she came back, it had flooded uh, the second time or a few years later when the floods came through, just it's a lot. Like I think is what you said, this has been something that has tested the resilience of that community. Uh, and they do, honestly, every time I go back there, there's just this, there's a, there, there's a different kind of a spirit in there. Firefighter Damien Asher agrees. Fort McMurray's strength is in its people. 
it was inspiring to see everybody stepping forward just to try and help to make the process go a little bit easier, a little bit faster for everybody to get friends and neighbors back to town. Because not only was it that people lost their house, people lost friends, people lost the the people that they would not not lost people, but like people weren't back in the city that you would normally hang out with your friends and family and your kids' friends. And uh, the schools were a little bit empty because uh, people hadn't returned. So everybody wanted to help partake and help out to make that faster so that everybody could get back to the city and have what they had had before. At the time, the 2016 wildfire was the costliest natural disaster in Canadian history, with over $3.7 billion worth of insurance claims. And the final cost, which included repairs and rebuilding, was almost at $9 billion. Mike Flanagan says that in the wake of that devastation, Wood Buffalo Municipality, the second largest municipality in Alberta, which oversees the city of Fort McMurray, implemented a new program to help protect them. We can't make communities or home fireproof, but we can make more resilient. The problem is you can do everything right, and everyone in the block can do everything right. Fire is opportunistic. It's probing. It's searching for a place to spread. It only needs one. And once it finds it, it has a beachhead. And then it can spread structure to structure. So you're only as strong as your weakest link. So that's the scary part. And the, and the fact that these embers can carry two kilometers. In May 2017, KPMG released a post-incident assessment and wildfire review that put forward several recommendations around emergency planning, training, and enhancing better communication systems. They're all aimed at preventing a repeat scenario. Money was also earmarked for flood mitigation. But there was one really big issue identified following the 2016 fires— the major backlog of vehicles on the only highway in and out of the city. If there was another mass evacuation order, would it happen again? I reached out to the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo, and officials said in a statement, quote, the municipality continues to advocate to the government of Alberta for the need for a secondary access route from Fort McMurray, such as the proposed East Clearwater Highway, a secondary access route out of Fort McMurray would increase community resilience, improve public safety, and deliver additional economic benefits for the region and all of Alberta, unquote. To find out more, I decided to email the Ministry of Transportation in Alberta, and a spokesperson for the minister said in a statement, quote, a reliable road network across the province is critically important for the safety of all Albertans. The statement went on to say the transportation minister has directed her department to continue to engage with the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo on a secondary route, unquote. It's been six years since the wildfires ravaged Fort McMurray and parts of northern Alberta. And you might be wondering, could this happen here again? It was here in 2017, okay, in May, and they were doing some burning, okay, prescribed burning. And the radio station was getting flooded with calls. There's smoke, there's smoke. And there was people worried about, but really, you know, you're, you're, you're safe for 10 to 20 years. Okay? But hundreds of other communities across Canada are, are not safe for 10 to 20 years. 
Fire expert Mike Flanagan also said that we're likely to see more extreme fires like this one in other communities because climate change has created longer fire seasons. In Alberta, for example, the fire season used to start in April, but now we're seeing the season start as early as March. In Canada, it's about 50% of fires are started by lightning and 50% by humans. But the long-term trend is the number of human-caused fires and area burned from human-caused fires are going down, whereas lightning-caused fires are increasing in area burn to the point where area burned in Canada has doubled since the 70s. This is largely due to, to human-caused climate change. The third reason is probably the most important, probably the most convoluted, okay? As the temperature warms, the ability of the atmosphere to suck moisture out of the fuel increases almost exponentially. So unless there's increases in precipitation to compensate from this drying effect from the warming, our fuels are going to be drier. Drier fuels, easier for fires to start, easier for fires to spread, and it leads to higher intensity fires. So this is why temperature is so important. Mike says normal wildfires can be rejuvenating, but problems arise when forests burn frequently and with increased intensity. If you keep getting hit by fire, even the roots lose their energy reserves and they die. These won't survive. People argue about who will go first, but it doesn't, it's like rearranging chairs in the Titanic, doesn't really matter. They will disappear. What replaces it? Shrubs, grassland. And that grass can burn every year. So as long as you've got vegetation, the fuel, ignition, and hot, dry, windy weather, you can have fire. Duchess Sabovich and her family were able to return home. And Damien Asher was able to rebuild. But many in Fort McMurray never returned. We still have houses that aren't built yet from the flood as well as the fire. It, it's a slow process to return and everybody has, everybody's different on their own, right? Everybody needs to take time to process themselves. But everybody here is supportive of those decisions and everybody's supportive to help out and to try and make things easier. We've had lots of organizations here step up to help the process of those people to move in, move back and to help build houses and all that sort of stuff. Fort McMurray in the future, we're, we're still going to be here. We're still going to be the same city we are. We're still going to be the same type of people we are. We're still always going to help out and um, be prepared for the, the next event that happens. Uh, we won't let it beat us down. We'll keep pushing, pushing forward. We'll keep striving forward and uh, rebuild if it happens again. For those who chose to stay, the memories of the fire will be with them forever. Thank you for joining me this week. I wanted to take a moment to thank Global News Managing Editor Fletcher Kent and Duchess Sabovich for sharing their stories. And thank you goes to Damian Asher and all those on the front lines who were working during this time in Fort McMurray. You can read more about it in the book Inside the Inferno, a firefighter's story of the brotherhood that saved Fort McMurray, which Damian co-wrote with some colleagues. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producers are Rosalind Kafour and Rob Johnson. Thanks to Emily Dunseeth and intern Hannah Clark, who helped with chasing and editing assistance. 
Also, a special thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Please let us know what you thought of this episode, and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Bella or email me at erica.bella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.